Leo Roundtable at leoroundtable.com. My name is Chip DeBlock, and I'm your host. We're a group of law enforcement professionals that talk about law enforcement issues, but we do it from a law enforcement perspective. I'm going to go ahead and introduce our crew to you guys. If you don't mind waiting for the video portion of our show, uh, we have attorney and former federal prosecutor all the way from Costa Rica this evening, Ward Mythaler. Uh, we also have and uh, mostly retired, we've got a uh, retired uh, Major Ronald McMullen, Captain Brett Bartlett. We have active and new addition to the show, uh, Sergeant Tyra Laura, somewhere in New Mexico. And we've got retired Corporal David D. Agresta and producer Will Statzer. So thanks guys for being on the show. And hey, I wanna give a shout out to our sponsors. We do have um, some major sponsors this evening and we do appreciate you know all their help. So without any uh, further delay here, we have, um, Wow, we've got Extra Duty Solutions, Calm Case Management, GunLearn.com, Verding Weapon Technologies, and Guardian Alliance Technologies. And we are nationally syndicated on the radio through the Boss Hawk Radio Network and also WBCF in Alabama. And also starting today, we are on Cool TV. So we're on cable throughout the state of Minnesota, also being added on uh, to the uh, Roku uh, network and also to Fire TV. So we've got some uh, major things going on and we are powered by PECSIP. All right, guys, we have uh, an interesting lineup for this evening. Uh, our very first one, we're back doing content for Police One, and it is called Leo Near Miss. So we're going to be doing custom Leo Near Miss stories for them. And I'm reading from their website, uh, the law enforcement officer Near Miss is a voluntary, non-disciplinary officer safety initiative. It allows law enforcement personnel uh, to read about and anon anonymously share stories of close calls and near misses. So this way you don't get jammed up in case something you know went down that your agency maybe wouldn't be happy with, but they allow you to do it anonymously. In our case, you'll know who, who was involved and it provides lessons that are learned that can protect fellow law enforcement officers that are found that find themselves in similar situations. So uh, with that said, Major Ron, I, I know you've got a story that you want to tell. I've heard it, it's, 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 it's pretty amazing. So the floor is yours. Okay, um, <clears throat> this is that near the beginning of my career. So it was probably early, it was early nineties. And I had a partner at the time, Joe Salazzo, who later becomes my brother-in-law, we're you know, very close. And we were a good team. We had a good time. You know, we, we did a lot of uh, really good work on the street. We we were we were called to this um, a, a neighborhood disturbance in this area called Grant Park. It was a mixed neighborhood, and uh, you know, so we went there, and the the call just said neighborhood disturbance. You know, adult versus children. You know, so you know we roll up there all nonchalant. You know, <laughs> you know summertime, whatever, and. Uh, all of a sudden, shots are firing. This guy's firing shots down the street and everything, and his back's to us. So we bail out of the car, and we're screaming at him and screaming at him, put the gun down. And he stopped. He didn't shoot anymore. And then he had his gun and had the gun in his hand, but it was um, his hand was around the butt. His finger was no longer on the trigger, but I had already taken all the play out of my trigger. I already got target acquisition, and you know I was going to drop him like a bad habit. And Joe kept screaming, is this guy boom, boom or something wrong with you? And I just taught Joe what boom, boom meant, you know, and we're screaming at him. And then suddenly he turns around and sees us, you know, after like literally, you know, 30 seconds or so of screaming at, you know, giving him instructions, what to do, drop the gun, da, 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 you know, so on and so forth. And he just drops his gun and he, he, he you know, he's, he's very upset. He puts his hands up and then uh, he just turns around and we arrest him. And what you don't know is that, what we didn't know was that he was mentally challenged, as was his wife, um, and he was deaf, totally deaf. 
So he never heard us. He never heard one word we said um, that wasn't in the call. It wasn't the call that he was mentally challenged. And the kids in the neighborhood, all the young kids, you know, being the asses that they can be, they would do stuff like uh, break a little window pane, and then he would fix the window pane. And then as he's walking inside, someone would run up and break it out again. You know, while they're in bed, they would break windows. They would ring the doorbell constantly and just run around the block. And, you know, stupid stuff like just harassing them, letting the air out of the tire because they don't want to get charged with a misdemeanor. You know, and, and this person's, like I said, he is, um, he was mentally challenged. So he was frustrated beyond. He just could not cope and he just lost control. And he had an antique gun on the wall that his grandfather had given him. And <laughs> he pulled the trigger and it worked. So he continued using it. And uh, it was horrible. It was a horrible set of circumstances, but, you know, put it this way, I was so nervous I didn't eat that night because I almost just took a life. And this guy is, it was a good guy that had just been harassed to the end of his abilities, his mental abilities or mental capacities. And the kids in the neighborhood almost died the same way. And the whole point is, you know, you learn from that because we're assuming this guy can hear us, but at the same time, we were, we were aware of our, our skill level, so to speak. I saw his finger wasn't on the trigger. I guess me and Joe both recognized his finger wasn't on the trigger and he was holding up screaming it by the time we gave the first, you know, orders or first commands. So in our mind, he heard a little bit of us, but in truth, he didn't hear a word we said. I mean, he, when I say deaf, he was stone deaf. He didn't read lips and was barely literate. So it was very tough, um, you know, communicating with this man. And uh, he was so apologetic, he was crying. So sad because he had a four-year-old daughter that that was normal, so to speak. She she wasn't mentally challenged or anything. And then um, we told some of the mothers what the kids were doing, and um, uh, the mothers took justice right there in their own hands out there at the same, at that time. They were so upset because you know, like you, your kid, you hit in the back of the head with a bullet, whether you're part of this mess or not. But the learning, <clears throat> the learning um, uh, caveat in this was the fact that. We, he looked like he could hear. We didn't even think. That wasn't even in our realm of possibilities as far as thinking that this man can't hear you. He can't hear you. And if he heard you, he may not have understood you. You know, he couldn't hear at all. And that was never anywhere in the notes. It was never, in, well, at that time we didn't have a computer, but it was never anywhere in the call. We had no idea the call information. And those are the kind of things you need to understand as, as a police officer rolling up to a scene. Are you communicating? What you're communicating, is it being understood? Are you, can you speak Spanish? Can you speak Vietnamese? Can they hear? Can they not hear? Can they see? Can they not see? You know, so those are learning points. And that was a great learning point for me and uh, my partner. And uh, of course we did, you know, roll call training. So everyone in our district understood from that point on. Now, Ron, you had told me that at one point you had taken, you had already started depressing the trigger and you had taken yeah. the slack out of me and that you were that yeah. close at one point. Yeah, all the play was out of my gun. I mean, off all, all the trigger. I mean, he was literally, as a matter of fact, when Joe, when the guy threw the gun, Joe, like, you know, took his, he, he was aiming too. He he went like that because he thought he had shot. And Joe goes, did I shoot him? Because, <laughs> you know, we were, we were that close. I say 30 seconds, 30 seconds, I'm just saying, because to me it felt like three seconds. But it had to be instruction, direction, you know, commands. But I said it was within 30 seconds of us arriving that we almost took a human life. And it would have been for not, you know, and how do you, how do you recover from that? You know, could, could you imagine the news, the news title for that story? Oh, I'll just say, I'll just say Joe did it. So I'd be all right. 
he was light skinned it. <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> but yeah, a wild, so wow, wild story. <laughs> yeah. Well, any uh, any comments from any anybody on the panel about about that or uh, any uh, any correlation with anything? Anything you want to add, Ron, before we wrap it up then? Or no, I thought Dave would have something to say. You know, usually you know some kind of critique. No, no. Listen, I was going to add, or just to layer on top of it, there are that instance or that that circumstance, that experience. Um, I think a lot of police officers have had similar ones that all had to do with some sort of a of a disability or uh, diabetic issues, um, you know, and and those subtleties that we that we run into, and I call them subtleties because, like Ron said, when you roll up on a call like that and the information that you have either via the you know the the uh, the current. Uh, computer-aided dispatching type of uh, stuff that we ha that police have now, or whether it was back then when all you had was a, a pad of paper and a radio and you wrote stuff down that the dispatcher was telling you, the the information that you get sometimes is is in, is usually incomplete, and those those subtleties of those calls uh, that you hear, you know, somebody with a gun, a neighborhood dispute, and you roll up on something like that, and somebody's deaf or somebody is in the midst of a diabetic uh, uh, reaction where their blood sugar has dropped too low and they're acting in ways that appear to be aggressive or, or you're interpreting them a certain way. And um, those types of incidences are prevalent in the law enforcement community. And oftentimes, uh, just like Ron was, and I, I guarantee you every cop on the street has had a similar or some other type of incident like that, where they are about to just absolutely lay a smackdown on somebody for some reason, and then suddenly a light goes on or something a, something clicks in their head that says, wait a minute. And then it's like, oh, oh crap, that could have gone bad really, really quickly. And it wouldn't, it would have been a, uh, a difficult thing to, to deal with having taken that action against a deaf person that couldn't hear you. And, you know, someone in, a, in the throes of a diabetic issue that, that couldn't understand you. I mean, the, the list goes on, but those things are prevalent across, across law enforcement, across the country and, and through all levels of, of, of street work. It's, 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 it can be a scary and, you know, you, you grab your chest afterwards, like, Holy God, that was close. Well, thank you. And you know, we got a story coming up um, a little bit later, a guy that used a infant as a, you know, he had her as a hostage, arguably as a shield. And uh, when cops took him out, uh, with the long gun. So that's coming up tonight. But, uh, but yeah, Ron, it, it, it could have been, it was so close. We got, uh, uh, about 30 seconds left. Anything else guys on this? Thank you for the story and for sharing. And, uh, and again, you're right. Always consider all the possibilities when you answer calls on the street. Great points too, David. Thank you very much. And, uh, thank you to police one for the opportunity. And if, if anybody on our show, uh, wants to supply your own story, you can do that on police one. So Leo near miss. On that note, guys, we're going to take a commercial break, but we'll be right back.
want to take a moment and tell you guys about our friends at Extra Duty Solutions. Inefficiencies can negatively affect your staff's production and morale as well as your agency's reputation. With proper oversight, your agency's Extra Duty Off-Duty Employment Program it can be profitable. While you still control your program, Extra Duty Solutions, they administer it at no cost to your agency while taking on all the administrative burden and the financial risk. They keep the program fair and transparent. The officer's most eligible work, the assignments get priority, and they pay out over $50 million in Extra Duty work within the past 12 months. Visit them today at extradutysolutions.com. I'd also like you to check out Column Case Management's NIBRS Compliant Records Management application and their applicant tracking solution. Some of the biggest clients are Chicago PD, New Orleans PD, but their typical agency is only 15 to 30 investigators. Their data is easy to enter in the manage. You can quickly drag any size attachment, um, including video, into a case from your desktop, laptop, or even your smartphone. They also have a 24-hour help desk. For a limited time, you can mention Leo Roundtable for a free two-year subscription. Visit columncase.com or schedule a free demo by emailing info at columncase.com. Welcome back to the Leo Roundtable Show. You know, we are going to do an update now. This is on policeone.com, and we're kind of covering all the uh, the stuff from the U.S. Capitol riot. And the title of this uh, first one, it, it's U.S. Police Way Officer Discipline After Rally, uh, Capital, you know, comma, Capital Riot. So I'm, I'm glad that at least in these publications, they're calling it the, the, uh, the rally instead of the protest, because it really was a rally. And the subtitle on this is at least 31 officers in 12 states are being scrutinized by their supervisors for their behavior in D.C. or they're facing criminal charges. So that's that's a lot of guys. Now, officials and experts agree that officers who were involved in the melee, they should be fired and charged for their role. I don't think that. The people here on the show would disagree with that. Uh, and we've talked about this at length. But what about the officers who attended only the Trump rally? that happened before the riot. How does a department balance an officer's free speech rights with the blow to public trust that comes from the attendance of law enforcement at an event, and this is within the article, not me saying it, but at an event with far-right militants and white nationalists who went on to assault the seat of American democracy. So that's the question that they're asking. Um, you've got some people that have weighed in on this. Uh, Will Atchison, he's a lawyer in Portland, said that if they were off-duty, it's totally free speech. And uh, it says that um, people have the right to express their political views regardless of who's standing next to them. You don't just uh, get guilt by association. But then you've got Ashisa Bell Hardaway, professor at Case Western Reserve University Law School. And uh, so she's saying an officer's presence at the rally creates a credibility issue as law enforcement agencies work to repair community trust, especially after last summer's protests against police brutality sparked by the police killings of uh, George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. And then you've got police leaders. Um, they say that they kind of, uh, you know, it kind of goes on. There's Chuck Wexler, Police Executive Research Forum, saying that um, you have to consider the actions and how they affect department credibility secure Raymu, Black Lives Matter, Seattle, King County. So you know where she's going to go with this. She says the officers should be fired regardless of the involvement. Public declarations of solidarity with Trump fosters um, not just community distrust, but terror of the entire department. So whether you just showed up for the rally, doesn't matter. If you sided with Trump, you should lose your job. Um, so Captain Brett, why don't you start us off on this? Well, first off, it's, it's odd that 
a group of people who have dedicated their lives to law and order who would not countenance such behavior if they were back in their hometowns all of a sudden get caught up in this. So uh, I'm hoping they weren't the mainstream us. They were the, the fringe us. If they broke the law, you know, go. I, every every department has rules and regulations on that behavior. It doesn't matter where you're at. If you break the law, you break the law. But there's going to be a gigantic political element shoved into this, as you can see in the article. You know, that the, the, the co-founder of Black Lives Matter for that city said, oh, of course, they're all guilty. Of course, of course we're guilty, all by association. Well, she, just, she needs to shut her yap. He goes, no, we're not all guilty by association. You should shut her big mouth. And I'm going to find her email. And, you know, I'm, I'm quick about emailing people. So I'll, I'll tell her to shut her yap. But, but this, is, this is a political backlash balanced with the fact that some people, yes, indeed, broke the law. But everybody is being swept up into the same dustpan and being tossed into the garbage. And it shouldn't be that way. But who didn't see this coming? All right. Good point, Captain. You know, um, I almost went to this thing with a friend and, uh, you know, I mean, not that I'm, I'm not active anymore, but I would hate to get associated with being at a rally, not going, I would have known enough not to go inside the stupid Capitol. I mean, you know, that's just asinine that you've got cops. I think these two Virginia cops that got fired for storming the U.S. Capitol are maintaining they did nothing wrong. But I mean, please, guys, you know, you know that once you, you break that barrier inside that inside that building, you know, you should be toast. Um, another uh, article talks about, um, it says that a union stops New Jersey town's attempt to make cops say whether or not they attended the Capitol riot uh, because they said the investigation was done solely for political purposes, just like what you're alluding to, Brett, and it was not based on fact. And then you've got another article saying that over 140 police officers were injured in the Capitol siege, uh, which I had not seen that information come out uh, before either. So I know we've got Attorney Ward and David coming up. We've got uh, about two and a half minutes, guys. Go ahead. If a cop, if a police officer's on duty, he does not have any First Amendment rights. But he does when he's off duty, but they're not absolute. There's a balancing test. I think it's absurd to suggest that police officers should be punished for attending a what was perceived to be a typical Trump rally. There's nothing wrong with that. By way of further example, suppose an uh, officer attends a Ku Klux Klan rally. Well, by all means, he should be fired immediately. So, so there's a balancing test on what, what type of activity you, you engage in, and, and these police officers should not be held responsible for what others do at a normal Trump rally. Thank you, Ward. David, do you agree? Y yes, I'm, I'm, I'm agreeing with Ward. And again, the, the, the abject hypocrisy of, of these politicians now about police officers that attended, and not the ones that, that violated the law, but just were there. Is is again sickening. Um, you you had politicians paying the bail of of rioters in these major cities that set fires, arsonists, and uh, and anarchists that that did massive damage to some of these major cities. And and you had politicians openly stating that they would pay the bail of anybody who was arrested. Um, and now all of a sudden, oh oh gee, uh, everybody needs to go to jail and, and lose their and lose their jobs. So. I agree with Ward. It, it's if you went there uh, for a rally, and I and I get the the differences. I was trying to think of some decent analogy to, to kind of put this with, but just because you're you, uh, the guilt by association, the guilt because you are someplace where something goes wrong, or someone else breaks the law, someone else in your profess, profession breaks the law, that somehow just because you were there, 
is now a crime. It, it's like I said, it's it's a, just another attack on the entire uh, law enforcement profession as a way to denigrate it and grind it down so that those forces uh, can, as Brett said, put their their plans in motion to uh, push this country backwards. It's it's just hypocrisy at its greatest point. Well, thank you, David. Appreciate it. Brett, you have 15 seconds, buddy. Yeah, it won't take long. I just sent her an email, told her to shut her yap. <laughs> <laughs> Did you really? Yeah. I wouldn't lie to you, Chip. We're not in a committed relationship. <laughs> okay, well, I appreciate that. All right. On that, on that note, guys, let's go ahead and take another commercial break. We'll be right back. you know about guns and ammunition there is that knowledge gap that leaves you confused and missing the complete picture gunlearn.com they've taken the confusion out of learning and they've made it easy gunlearn.com is the first and it's the only company to offer a step-by-step -step program that takes you from your present knowledge level to become a safe accurate and competent certified firearm specialist they provide citations from federal law and atf rulings for every point taught to ensure accuracy and their training is approved by major forensic organizations law enforcement agencies and firearm manufacturers since 1996 they've taught everything that leos need to know about firearms and ammunition to all facets of law enforcement start today with online training or register to attend a live seminar Get train, get free training for yourself and your personnel at your agency by hosting a seminar at no cost to your agency. Come aboard as one of the most firearm knowledgeable people in the world by joining the folks at GunLearn.com. Welcome back to the Leo Roundtable Show. All right, guys, if there's nobody else in the last one, let's go ahead and jump to a video. In fact, we're going to cover two videos. The very first one, you know, uh, my wife called me into the room uh, er, a little earlier, and Bradenton PD, that's in Florida, was on, and it, it's uh, I found it on uh, Bradenton.com. Super Bowl, um, Bradenton police celebrate the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Now, I'm in Tampa. Some of the people on the show are in Tampa, and uh, some of us know the Bradenton police chief. So it was a funny video. It was a skit posted on Twitter by the Brainton Police Department. And uh, you guys will have to watch it, but you've got a, a passenger that's got a guy, guys in uniform. He's got a Buccaneer helmet on, and then you've got a, he's got a female driver. They're sitting in the car, and he's talking about the Buccaneers, and she's saying, yeah, the, uh, the Chiefs are coming, and of course they're playing Kansas City Chiefs, but you know, she's talking about the chief is walking up on him on his passenger side door. So sure enough, Chief uh, Melanie Bevan starts rapping on his window and he rolls it down and uh, and she fist bumps him saying, go Bucks." It was a pretty humorous video. I was glad to see Melanie, uh, who should be the St. Pete police chief as far as I'm concerned, uh, but she's in Brainton. Good for them. They, they, they got a good catch. Any comments in the video, uh, guys, before we uh, go on to the next one? All right. Well, it was good. It was good seeing Melanie get some airtime. So. Uh, anyhow, let's go to our next one then. And like I said, we've got another video coming up. We're still on policeone.com. This is Phoenix police. They shoot and kill an armed suspect holding a baby. So this is the one I was referring to earlier. The Phoenix police shot and killed an armed man who was reportedly holding a baby hostage. 
They released the body cam video and the 911 calls of the event surrounding the shooting. Now, security video shows uh, the suspect is grappling with a woman. He is later running through a parking lot with a small child in his arms. So a 911 caller reports the man had stolen her son. And a separate caller also reported that the suspect was shooting at people in a drive-through. So the body cam video shows the officers arriving on the scene. Uh, but the fatal shooting it is partially obscure, obscured by the patrol car's door. Police say the suspect, who's 37-year-old Paul Bolden, refused commands to drop his weapon. And according to police, Bolden pointed his gun at the baby in his arms. And that's when an officer fired. And it was a, uh, it was a shot with a long gun. Hit the suspect. And to me, I don't know how many of you guys saw the video there's and there's a couple of videos of this out the one that was on police one didn't really see what i what i looked to me like a headshot uh there's another video where they it seems pretty clear that it's a headshot to me it hits the suspect though he kind of crumbles down and uh, he later dies to the hospital um i know that the shooter is told by the other officers you know don't run in don't run any and he said you know screw that i'm gonna run in and grab the baby make sure the baby's okay which he does and baby was fine so the officers later learned that bolden had had a fight with his girlfriend, took their baby, uh, according to police, and the boy was not injured in this uh, altercation. So, Captain Brett. I saw that. I, I got to tell you, kudos to that officer. He took a good stance. You know, what a risk he's taking. But he was obviously confident in his abilities. If you look at the equipment he's got in his rifle, he's got a magnified, magnifying scope, as opposed to usually what you see nowadays, which is a red dot uh, uh, EOTech, something like that that doesn't magnify so a lot of agencies are going to what's called the designated marksman. It's a it's an intermediate step between a red dot EOTech and, and a SWAT guy. So the officers are trained a little bit more in the longer range shooting, and, and it fills that gap. I think Tampa is still trying to get something like that going on. But uh, good for him. What a horrible, horrible thing. You know, you don't wake up that day thinking, I'm going to have to shoot a guy in the head because he's trying to kill this baby. But, you know, that that's the job, y'all. And um, I, I did watch the video. He did a great job. I can't imagine um, the stress that he was probably undergoing at that time because there's you can think of all the ways it could have went wrong. And he actually did a really good job. Um, for my department, we did go to those red dots. So we are training with that. I don't know about other departments, but it does come in handy, especially because a lot of the shooters that we have right now, if they're really good, they go through SWAT school. They have all these special tactics that they're learning versus just regular patrol. So for the patrol officers to have that, um, just seeing what he went through, I mean, I think it would come in handy for training purposes. Yeah, I'd like to reiterate the fact that he did an exceptional job. That's where it's supposed to end. Bad guy down, baby lives. No cops are injured. Um, you know, what, what kind of human being are you? Your own child, you're going to hold a gun to the head. You know, that, that just drives me crazy, that kind of BS. But, um, and to Brett's thinking, you know, I'm thinking like, oh, God, is this guy a SWAT guy? Is he not a SWAT guy? How, how was he trained on, you know, what's his video going to be? You know, because um, you got to think, I'm close enough. Do I, do, I, do I just put the X on it, on the spot, or do I, do I aim high, do I aim low? Where's the baby? You know, all that stuff. You know, a regular guy, just someone just think about it. You know, a regular cop is trained, what, once a year? You just qualify once a year? You probably don't even train that much. The SWAT guys do it twice a month. You know, like when I was on the team, we did it once a month. Now they do it twice a month for those guns. So, you know, you know, your skill level's up there. You're pretty psyched. So that's the way it's supposed to happen. And, you know, kudos to him and his department. Thanks, Major. You know, Tyree brought up a good point. I went to SWAT school and, and, 
why would I? I mean, making those resources available to some of the troops. I mean, obviously having that training, and I don't mean just like once every year or two, but actually putting in the practice what you uh, what you learn so that you have a you know it, it's it's repetitive. Uh, but yeah, having that kind of training, um, I noticed that my skills uh, went off the chart once I went to that training. It was just it was just amazing. I mean, I probably can't shoot as well as uh, I know I cannot shoot as well as as Captain Brett. He's just a machine. Uh, and, but, uh, Brian, you probably, you may have me too, but, uh, anyhow, Captain Brett, you're my hero, man. You know, it's, it's, you wouldn't want to force that training or that equipment on everybody because every agency is the same. Every agency has grass eaters and it has meat eaters. So, <laughs> you know, right. You don't want, yep. you don't want to stick a rifle in the hand of the grass eaters. You know, the, the guy that's good at taking the, the accident call, but doesn't want to do police work. First year at Tampa, you know, when we reformed, everything was, everybody got to bid. I go, all, right, all, you, all you meat eaters over here, all you report takers over here, don't come and talk to us. Go take your reports. Love you. But don't come over here with us meat eaters. We're going to go put people in jail. I agree with that, Captain. But I just can't believe Chip said, I may be better shot than him. Bitch, please. <laughs> well, you may uh, be taller yeah. than him, too. Maybe. Maybe on a good yeah, day. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, throw, throw in out weighing by, by about a good 150 pounds, too, but that's beside the point. Um, you know, the, Tyra touched on it, the, uh, the, the aspect of having that equipment availability. If we get a chance to get to that, another story on the, on the list about departments qualifying, how often they do versus training, how often they do, uh, another great point. But here was an officer that was that had done all the things, all the, all the other things that we may talk about having to do with mental preparation, mental re rehearsal, uh, and as well as actual training on the range enough to be confident uh, with, with his equipment within a certain range and did the job spectacularly. Um, uh, it, I was very disappointed, just like a lot of the canine videos we, we see. We just didn't get to see all the really good stuff with the blocked, some of the blocked video. Um, but it, it went down or went as smoothly as you could. It was startling how smoothly it went. Arrival, deployment, uh, and neutralization. It was just that in that order, that smoothly. So he was obviously mentally pre prepared to do what he had to do, which, um, and having the equipment to do it was important. Hence the, the negative reaction that most police have about that, that other movement of demilitarizing the police, taking away the tools, taking away the military-type equipment that we often see, as, in, as we did here, how important it can be to stop a situation like that. The first part of the video, you, the, the body camera of the one officer who has a handgun, I can't imagine him taking that shot. There's just no way. How are you going to resolve that? A guy with a, with a gun and a baby. Oh, wait, I know. We'll call the mental health people out. They'll talk him down and oh yeah that's what we'll do crap all right good all, all good all good input guys is there anybody else before we move on got roughly uh, a minute and 15 seconds here before we take our next break so let me get to this article on policeone.com and it's chief ken wallentine um i don't know ward i know that you were trying to think of a of a of a columnist that you liked. I don't know if this is him or not, uh, but it's titled Reasonable Response, even if no perf even if uh, not perfect, entitles officers to judgment. 
So it's a uh, it's an interesting article. Ward, I hope that you're able to add some stuff to this. It cites a case called Turner versus the City of Champaign. A caller reported that a guy named Richard Turner was pawing through trash cans, speaking unintelligibly um, to people that are on the sidewalk. And he's a homeless guy. Uh, police knew who he was. They dealt with him over the years. And they'd had several encounters in which officers ended up transporting him to mental health uh, treatment facilities. And it goes on to say that the first officer, when he arrived, he found Turner rolling on the ground with his pants down, flailing his arms, babbling um, unintelligibly. Um, he got up, he walks back and forth across the street, and then the officers uh, called out to him, uh, but he responds incoherently. And then they decide to detain him. And guys, hold that thought. We're gonna take a commercial break and we'll finish this up in just a second. We'll be right back after this commercial break. Now, the Viridian Fact Duty Weapon Mounted Camera, it has become the only gun camera in wide use by law enforcement across the nation. It fits standard police duty weapons and holsters and records automatically when the officer's gun is pulled from its holster, providing an unobstructed view of critical use of force events from the end of the firearm, overcoming inherent issues with body cams. Now, the Fact Duty, that's the FACT Duty, employs a 1080p full high-definition digital camera with a microphone and a 500-lumen tactical light. It has less expensive data management costs than other evidentiary camera systems. You can get more information on the fact duty at gun-camera.com. And I also want to talk to you about industry leader and technology solutions for law enforcement. It's Guardian Alliance Technology uh, Technologies. Now, their software will cut background investigators' time in half. And we all know that there is a call for more accountability in hiring and selecting who gets to wear the badge. Guardian has developed a CGIS compliant background investigative software platform that helps weed out problematic applicants in record time. With Guardian, the entire background uh, check process is more comprehensive, it's much faster for both the agency and for the applicants. No upfront fees are long-term commitments, so I strongly recommend that you visit them today at guardianalliancetechnologies.com. back to the Leo Roundtable show. Now, in talking about this guy named Turner, he's responding incoherently. They decide to detain him. They take him in for a mental health, uh, I mean, to take him in for mental health treatment. Now, the officers called for an ambulance and they asked Turner to sit on the curb, but he starts running away. Officers are chasing him. They're shouting at him to stop. Officer um, catches up to him, grabs his shoulder. There's a struggle. And uh, then Turner's grabbing at both the officers that are trying to control him. The officers take him to the ground. Um, they turn him on his stomach, handcuff him. And at this point, he's still kicking at the officers. Um, so, and, you know, they get on the radio and they get what they, they're calling the hobble, which I'm sure is like a, uh, I'm assuming it's like a hog tie. And uh, when they do this, the supervisor that comes out, they he asks if the guy's breathing and they realize that he's not. Paramedics arrive, they take him to the hospital. He never gets his pulse back. An autopsy determines that he dies from cardiac arrhythmia. Um, it, it's caused, they said it was caused by a pre-existing underlying condition of having an enlarged heart. And the autopsy showed no signs of suffocation or injuries to Turner's body. So the sister sues. And she. there's all kinds of reasons why they've had prior, you know, incidents with him that were always resolved in him going to a, um, a facility. They didn't call a crisis intervention officer. He was a mentally ill person, yada, yada. So the court looks at this and they say that with... Um, with hindsight that they can say that the death could have been avoided. Uh, but however, they're pre 
forbidden from using the 2020 hindsight because of Graham versus Connor. And the court said that uh, whether the officers used best police practices or not, um, they uh, they didn't violate his rights under the Fourth Amendment. And they said that the court held that it was reasonable first for the officers to grab Turner's shoulder and to seize him, and second, to take him to the ground. And they also held the officers to not use excessive force on him. And they said that it is possible the officers violated some provision of department policy or not, but federal court uh, civil rights litigation does not involve that issue. And we've mentioned that once before on the show. So, you know, so, so that said, Attorney Ward, love to get you to break it down for us. Well, there's not a whole lot more to be said. This is an excellent, uh, I read the opinion. This is an excellent article by Mr. Wallentine. Um, the other author I was thinking of is Mike Callahan, who writes for Police One, also writes excellent articles, legal articles. Um, it's, it's the, the Seventh Circuit acknowledged here that this is a death that might have been prevented, but they said that's not the issue. They said the issue is whether it was a reasonable under the Fourth Amendment, and they, and they said that it was. Uh, as a sidebar, I might point out that this decision was rendered by two judges. Uh, there were three judges, but the, the third judge was Amy Barrett, and uh, she did not, uh, she did not continue with the case because she became Associate Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court. So all in all, a remarkable decision for the, for the police here. Contrast that with the ridiculous Tenth Circuit decision we discussed a few, few weeks ago where they held that the police might be liable because they allegedly cornered somebody for questioning and he grabbed a hammer, uh, which resulted in him being shot. And somehow the court felt that maybe the, the police were responsible for that. This is the exact opposite and the much better opinion. All right. Thank you, Ward. Appreciate it. David, what do you, what do you have to say on that? Well, I was waiting to see if Ward touched on it, and you didn't quite, you didn't read quite far enough down that down the end of the article. But what the last paragraph is what I found most interesting, and that's that uh, you kind of touched on it, where it said that a police officer's compliance with the rules of his department is neither sufficient nor necessary to satisfy the Fourth Amendment's reasonableness requirement. I thought that was, I don't want to say key, but very promising for at least in federal court, for the places like California and Oregon and Washington, where they're putting these necessary statements into their policies. And we were all wondering how that would that would fail or, or go forward in federal courts when they started suing, uh, having civil rights violations, charges and whatnot, that, and this is kind of a peek into the mind of at least the Seventh Circuit to say, yeah, that that doesn't matter. What your policy is doesn't affect how that that reasonableness requirement is viewed by the court. So I thought that last paragraph was enlightening. I thought it was it was a good last statement. You know, that's I'm glad you brought that up, David, because it's it's kind of fascinating. I know that we're getting a new panelist uh, next week. Uh, former FBI, and he specializes in use of force reviews. I mean, that's what he does for a living now um, all over the country. So I'm kind of curious if we bring this up, you know, to him next week, I'm kind of curious what his input might be on this too, because you're right, that new reasonable standard, uh, I'm sorry, necessary standard, as opposed to the reasonable that we've enjoyed for many years. And I don't mean enjoy like we enjoy having it like that. I just mean, it's just, it's a very clear cut and it's a, it's a standard that makes sense. And, and of course, the uh, the necessary standard is really unattain unattainable, in, in my opinion, if you want if you want all the cops using it to stay alive. So anybody else on this one before we move on? All right, well, thanks for the input. 
you know, moving along here, we've got another one on Police One. It's called Missouri Bill Would Allow Deadly Force Against Demonstrators. I know we've talked about this on occasion. Now, this is in Columbia, Missouri. Uh, David, I see the animation. Uh, so a Missouri senator on, on, uh, on Monday, uh, and this is um, about a week ago, pitched a bill. So it's in bill form that would allow the use of deadly force against protesters on private property and and give immunity to people who run over demonstrators who were blocking traffic. And here's a, uh, the bill sponsor, it's Senator Rick uh, Bratton, B-R-A-T-T-I-N. Um, I spelled that because I, I figured panelist uh, Captain Brett Bartlett's gonna be emailing this guy, thanking him right now. Uh, but he says, quote, to think that your right to protest enables you the right to stop traffic and literally stop people's ability to move about freely in this nation is a gross misunderstanding of our constitutional rights. And so that was interesting. Remember, he's the sponsor of the bill. Now, uh, Bratton's bill targets unlawful assemble assemblies on a number of fronts, including making it a felony crime to block traffic as part of a protest. It would also expand misdemeanor harassment laws to include causing emotional distress during protest. And here's another quote, and he says, people can't even go and have a nice meal without being harassed and run out, you know, kicked out of the restaurant. I wanted to ensure that people who are able to go and enjoy their freedoms and liberties, just like anyone else should be able to do. So that's his purpose, you know, behind the bill and trying to get it passed. Captain Bartlett. Well, I may go against what you said, Chip. I don't think that I'm going to run somebody over and kill them because I'm late for class. I'm not going to do that. If somebody's if somebody's blocking the road, I'm not going to kill them. But if they come at me, if I rise that level, I think that's that this law should cover that, so it makes it easier for somebody to say, I, you know, I was in fear of my life, or if I'm eating dinner somewhere and some knucklehead comes up, put his, puts his face in my face. I should be able to punch him in the snot locker without risk of going to jail for that. But if a group of people, whether they're breaking a traffic law or not, is across the street, I'm not going to run them over. I, I'll be mad. I'll try to go the other way. But I'm not going to kill somebody because I'm late for class. The other stuff I'm kind of on board with. But I just I just don't. Taking a human life, the, the me being late is, is not a good balance for taking the life. A lot of those stuff yeah, is very useful. And, and, and I agree. In all fairness, I have to believe that they left the article. They didn't get it exactly right on that. I cannot believe that a senator or there would be any hope for any legislation in the past saying that if you weren't on in fear of great bodily yeah. injury, just like us, or, or, yeah. or death. So I, I have to assume that that would be the case because you're completely right. It would, it would and, and should be unjustified um, if it was any other scenario. So is there anybody else, guys? Oh, David D. David well, D. Gresta. Come, come, come on, you know, after that animation, I had to say something. <laughs> okay, you Listen, got about uh, one minute, David. Uh, several, it, it was several shows ago, and Kentucky started this. Uh, I think it was Kentucky, where they they want they started introducing legislation about um, protesters that were blocking roads and and people that were driving and they were and and somebody got tangled up or hit or whatnot. And they were saying, you know, how can we hold these people accountable? And there was some legislation they were trying to do in Kentucky. And I championed it then, and I champion it now. I think it's fantastic. Um, uh, Ward was on board with it about arsonists. Uh, there should be absolutely no mercy whatsoever for people that indiscriminately destroy private property, destroy any property, um, in, in, under the guise of some sort of protest. 
And I know they're mostly peaceful. Bullcrap. But no, I, I'm absolutely on board with it. All right, David. Very good. Anybody else on this one? Now, any any predictions, David, and within within 10 seconds, whether this is going to pass or not? No? All right. We'll be right back after this commercial break. up the first portion of our show and you know we are on the radio and some people are carrying a one-hour version of our two-hour show so we've just completed that and we've got some really great content coming up you for you in the second hour of the show and just want to make sure that everybody realizes that if you want to look at the videos that we're talking about simply go to our facebook page leo roundtable and you can watch all the videos all the show topics are up there in advance and also leo roundtable.com 